Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. I am excited for today's incredible panel. Returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, good morning. How you doing? Doing great. That's a great group today. I'm looking forward to this discussion, guys. Also returning to the roundup is Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president of the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Good morning, Lene. Welcome back. It's great to see you. Thrilled to be here. And the fantastic, the fabulous Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be with you guys. On this week's Roundup, the Republican Party declaring the attempted coup legitimate political discourse, the Canadian trucker protest, and governors across the country announcing plans to end mask mandates. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about the women and people of color who are running as Republicans in the midterms. And if you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. Last Friday, the Republican Party voted to censure Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger at their winter meeting in Salt Lake City. And in their official censure, the RNC criticized Cheney and Kinzinger for taking part in the House's investigation of the January 6th attack, saying that they were participating in, quote, persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse, end quote. And after the vote, RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel attempted to clarify the language, saying it was never meant to apply to rioters who violently stormed the Capitol in Mr. Trump's name, according to the New York Times. Ronna said, quote, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger crossed a line. They chose to join Nancy Pelosi in a Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens who engaged in legitimate political discourse that had nothing to do with violence at the Capitol, end quote. The censure itself which was negotiated privately by party members, made no such distinction between people who engaged in violence and people who did not. The Times also pointed out that the House committee is not examining any normal political debate. So it looks like McDaniel is trying to claim that the committee has gone too far in investigating what actually led to the attack on January 6th as though it happened in a vacuum. And this is now the third week in a row that we've talked about a major figure in the Republican Party minimizing the attempted insurrection and attacking the prosecutors and legislators who are attempting to hold the perpetrators accountable. So how should we expect this message to filter out to voters? Because it appears to me that McDaniel is trying to do damage control here. Uh, Mike, why don't you lead off? Well, look, I've long been a believer, as I've shared with the listeners, that the January 6th events from a purely political perspective is perhaps the only thing that can save the Democrats uh, in the midterms. And I think I'm probably in the minority saying that. Um, certainly in D.C., if I was a Democrat, you know, hearing of the, you know, let's, let's talk about our policy victories. Let's talk about what Build Back Better does. Let's talk about the infrastructure plan and, and all of our policy uh, directives. Um, 
I, I think that's that's misguided, or maybe it's just the difference between the way Republican operatives think and the way Democratic operatives think. I, I believe that this moment um, is a real inflection point in the Republican Party for a couple of reasons, um, none of none of which are good for its prospects. The, the first is it signals kind of this internecine war that's going to take place between the Trump stooges, the Trump believers, the Trump adherents. And those that are trying to distance and move away from this as quickly as possible and bury it so that um, we can we can so they can, you know, salvage whatever they're going to try to, to, to pull together for the midterms. Um, look, the, the Republican National Committee um, is the top governing body of of the party. It's it's now largely I mean, back in the day, it was it was some of the most prominent leaders and donors of 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 the of the of the GOP. In many ways, it's now kind of like a, a local central committee, which is made up largely of um, has-beens and never will be's, <laughs> if I can say that, um, <laughs> who are just simply trying to, to find who, who are trying to find some value and title by you know being a Trump apologist. And the the professional class, I think, has, has had enough. And I think that they, the, the 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 folks in D.C., especially the senators and the and the Republican. Republicans in the Senate have realized that if they're going to be rid of Trump, this is that this is that moment. And you have to really understand most people in Washington, D.C. and the Republican Party don't want Trump around anymore for a lot of reasons, despite the public pronouncements. If this guy does come to dominate the party, it essentially ends the political future for 90% of them. They're, they're at the top of their career. They're not going anywhere. They, they want to be done with him, especially the Mitch McConnells of the world who view this as a threat to his leadership. The RNC, the RNC pronouncement was in direct conflict with what he has said in the past. He reiterated and doubled down that this was a violent insurrection you are now seeing, and, and incidentally, it is not inconsequential that he was flanked by five to seven other senators behind him when he said this. This was no surprise that this was going to be said. A lot of these senators are actually out there starting to say this stuff too. There is a battle that is going on. Pence's statement uh, that was made, McConnell's statement that was made, the Thunes, the Ernsts, the, the, the folks that are out, the Murkowskis, the, the ones that are, that are lining up and saying, I'm with McConnell on this. Um, Lindsey Graham, of course, bouncing around the way that Lindsey Graham does. Ted Cruz coming out saying that Mitch McConnell was wrong, says he's you know taking the Trump lane. This is the first. This was the first. The RNC move was the first salvo in a battle for the entire GOP apparatus. The RNC is controlled by Trump. The Senate is still controlled by Mitch McConnell. Kevin McCarthy is trying to figure out what the hell he's going to do and which possible way the winds are going to blow to kind of allow him to, to be speaker if they pick up the. The majority, and he, of course, is worried about some of the blowback and 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 some of the downside of allowing Trump to continue, while also trying to, to to demonstrate fealty. So, in many ways, this is this is a party that is consumed by this issue, and why there is not a full frontal attack on this by Democratic politicians is absolutely beyond me. This is the only reason that this is not seeping into and dominating the entire consciousness of the country is because the Democratic Party has not unloaded the cannon. It's all over cable news, so why not jump onto that and start firing in that direction? No matter what happens here, this is not good news for the Republicans, no matter how this plays out. Um, and, and to think that, that this, 
that they're going to somehow win this by their policy on inflation or or their infrastructure plan. I just it it escapes me. I just don't get it. Lene, where are the cannons? Are they loaded? Where are they where are they aimed? And when are they going to fire? Yeah, I think the cannons are sitting with the January 6th committee and that we are going to see them fire shortly. Um, You know, I think Democrats are very aware um, that they have to play this carefully because it's very backward looking. Like most voters are not thinking about what happened on January 6th. Um, They're thinking about, as Mike said, inflation, costs, uh, the pandemic, whether schools are open. And so if we seem like we are just obsessed with Trump and that's all we're talking about, I don't actually think that's good politics. And I think if we are going to unload the cannons, we know that folks have short memories. So, you know, the time between now and the midterms is an eon in today's political era. Um, You know, if you think about how much time we have before 2024, that's, I can't even understand how much time that is and how many headlines are going to be between now and then. So I think we are trying to be strategic about when we unload the cannons um, and doing it in a time period that will have the greatest impact. Um, But for the Republican Party, I think it's crazy. I mean, obviously, it's crazy. It's crazy for moral reasons, but it's also crazy for political reasons. I mean, (laughs) I think Mitt Romney said it best. He said, anything that my party does that comes across as being stupid is not going to help us. Like, Amen to that. That's true. And um, and it meant that there was this whole um, set of headlines this week that was about the Republicans defending violent attacks on the Capitol instead of uh, criticizing Joe Biden and showing his low approval rating and all these other things. Like they they've got a great playing field right now in terms of approval rating, in terms of inflation, uh, in terms of just the the history of first midterms for a president. And instead, they're talking about this. Like what? Why? I don't understand what the thinking was there. I I think there's also a difference. There's also an important difference between you know what well. well whose name is on the cannonball that's being fired, right? And it's better for groups that are are not, you know, faceless, nameless people. Those are the people who should, you know, can most effectively land those attacks, at least right now at this stage in the midterms, than, than individual Democratic politicians, right? But who then have to take heat. The, the, the negative attacks then drive their favorables down. Like, that's fair to say, right, Mike? Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I just want to say, I mean, look, the more specific the, 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 the attack or the launch of the cannonball, I love this analogy we're drawing out, but the more specific that the, <laughs> the target that the cannonball is being fired at, of course, it's going to have greater impact. What is unique about this is the enormity of it. One of the things about the timeline and why I think this is taking so long, it's DOJ. And by the way, I'm, I'm not one of those people that's, you know, kind of, you know, losing sleep about why Merrick Garland isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. I mean, this is serious methodical work here. This is, this is, this is going to get to the highest levels of our government. And I don't mean just the president. I mean, everybody in the oval had to be aware that something was going on. There's going to have to be a lot of deals cut and they're going to have to be very clear about what it is that they're trying to get and who it is that they're trying to, to bring to justice. Having said that, I, I'm also convinced that it's expanding every day. I think they're unfolding and seeing just how deep this was. In that environment, how you cannot, how you cannot start firing now is is political malpractice. Okay, the, the, the Democrats should be 
let the cavalry go charge the hill fix bayonets go get them because you're not going to be wrong it's so expansive and if you can't set this as a forward-thinking frame i think lenny is right that this is about the future direction of the country it's not about january 6 it's about what's coming if there's a takeover in the midterms this is setting the entire predicate the entire frame of what is happening at this moment in american history and that needs to be what the the message that they are absolutely driving. I, I and look, I'm also one of those people that thinks that there's a historical reason for Biden's low lower numbers. But the truth is, I think if he just got out there and started uh, attacking and started throwing punches, his numbers would go up. I think I'd he's love a vic- to see that, and I I totally agree with that, and I'd love to see that. Oh, America that, would that love fight. to see it. The Democrats certainly yeah. want to see it. They want to see somebody fighting. They want to see somebody throwing punches at the bad guys here, and they're they're not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. I just I don't get it. I like I don't get it. Yeah, Lucy, jump in here, and then I want to ask you about McConnell. Look, you don't have to twist my arm to get me to say that I think that Democrats are really ineffective politically. At the same time, I'm not sure that what is needed here is even more attention on January 6th. That's an issue that I care a lot about. I live in the Beltway. I'm thinking about it all the time. But Pew put out a poll this week that shows that you know this is not where Americans' hearts are. I wish it were, but I think there's a real risk. I mean, even half of Democrats think that enough or more than enough attention has already been paid to January 6th. And a declining share of Americans even think that January 6th was Trump's fault. So I think that there's a real risk in in hoping that people will anchor to this uh, because I just don't think that they will, unfortunately. And too much time has passed. And Democrats also haven't paid enough attention to it in the meantime. They haven't connected issues like voting rights. They have not connected issues to January 6th. So if it's suddenly urgent again, that's kind of hard to believe. It's it's This is why they're failing with other pieces of, of what we would call kind of accompanying piece of legislation around this messaging. I think that the, the problem, I think Mike hit on something that is really, really key when he talked about who exactly are the people at these RNC meetings. And I've got to say, one of the best things about being a, you know, persona non grata with the Republican Party is not having to attend these awful <laughs> events with awful so people. Bad. They're so um, bad. So awful. That's like actually just as an aside, my favorite part <laughs> about being never Trump is not having to mm-hmm. socialize with Republicans. But Mike is getting <laughs> at something, which is that people who were institutional 10 years ago, eight years ago, they're not they're not in power anymore. All of these people are relative newcomers. Now, there are pieces of the the consulting class who are happy to go along with it. Obviously, there are tons of people like that. But the people in power in the Republican Party right now who are making decisions, who are calling the shots, they're relative newcomers. They're completely off the rails. And what's so significant, I think, about this censure is is something it is basically that the party has decided that they are not going to pursue a wait and see approach to this like we'll let it wash out we'll see what kind of republican brand the voters want maybe a uh, maybe the republican voters in Wyoming want to have a kind of mavericky republican like Liz Cheney right that was the approach of the republican party for years that's why you could have a party with John McCain who could be in sharp contrast to, you know, uh, another Republican elsewhere, right? But not only have they censured 
Kinzinger and Liz Cheney to show that there's going to be a complete total zero tolerance policy for any alternate interpretation of, you know, domestic terrorism. They also have gone even further. And I want to point this out. I really want to make this point because people are not not talking about this enough. The thing that is so much more significant than the censure is the changes that the RNC at the same time made to committee rules, including a rule called Rule 11. And Rule 11 is about how parties, how the party does or does not get involved in primaries. And the the basics, without getting too in the weeds, is essentially the party will not get involved in a, they will not support a, a primary challenger to an incumbent in an open primary. They will not get involved picking favorites. So, in Wyoming, Liz Cheney has outraised her challenger by a multiple of about 5x. She's raised 2 million bucks. Her closest, most viable primary challenger has raised a few hundred thousand. And the RNC, in conjunction with that censure vote last week, voted to basically make a strike a deal with the Wisconsin Republican Party to allow the RNC to come in and spend national RNC funds, national Republican money to take out, to cut Liz Cheney off at the knees in the primary. And that is a thing that we should be paying a lot of attention to because it shows that not only have the crazies taken over the building that is the RNC and locked the keys, they're also willing to basically pour gas and light themselves on fire, right? Because they are so oriented toward toward uh, this vision, uh, this MAGA vision, this weird dystopian view. and And the way that that relates to Mitch McConnell, who now is saying, look, I'm not with them, is that he nodded Mitch to that McConnell, point. Your, your point. Mitch McConnell is saying, I'm actually, whoa, whoa, this is like too much for even me. I'm not with this. I'm not into this. Could that be because of Mitch McConnell's donors? Could it be other influencers? It doesn't really matter. The train has left the station, but it's a real weird moment to pause and think, wow. Maybe where we thought the chips fell (laughs) is not where the chips fall. Maybe in this kind of slow dumpster fire, slow burn dumpster fire of today's Republican Party, maybe actually when everything settles, the dust settles, Mitch McConnell, not my favorite, winds up being on the side of democracy and not on the side of the autocracy of Ron McDaniel. And maybe there are other people coming along with Mitch McConnell but it is it is a it is a it is a reminder of how we are only sorry I'm not as optimistic about Mike we are o- uh, as Mike is we are only really at the beginning of this of the decline we're really in like an early phase of this and Trump is like going to be cast aside too right but the we're off the rails we're this is TLDR <laughs> this is off the rails look at the things that they're changing like rules, internal party rules that they never would have dealt with before. Yes. He also said it's not the job of the RNC to single out members of the party who have a different view than the majority. And that has been sort of gospel within the Republican Party for as long as I can remember. And for him to have to say that out loud, I I think 
just underscores your point. It's because so, Mitch McConnell likes to win elections, to our point, right? Like, yeah. Mitch McConnell likes to win well, elections. Yes. And, and, Mitch and, McConnell does not like being the yes. minority leader. He would like to be the majority leader for, right. you know, 80 more years right. as he becomes replaced with robot parts over time. Like, he loves power, and he knows that the way you get power is by winning elections, and he knows this is not good politically. And by the way, I think I can smell the smoke coming from the short-circuiting of many listeners' uh, brains right now because Lucy just said Mitch McConnell might be on the side of democracy in the end. Um, I'm not saying I'm going to break bread with the guy. (laughs) I'm just saying that we might be put in the in the on some of the same list. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That the list is getting longer and longer, though. So, um, by the way, uh, after his statements, uh, Mitch McConnell statements. the Dark Lord himself, Donald Trump, released a statement saying that McConnell is so against what Republicans are about, end quote. Boris Epstein was on Steve Bannon's podcast on Wednesday and said McConnell is done with the Republican Party. Uh, Bannon suggested McConnell is an establishment leader who mocks Trump and his movement. CNN wrote another story calling it a Republican civil war. Um, and McConnell just got reelected and he's going to be in the Senate for at least another five years. Uh and so in terms of actually governing uh, and governing power, he's the most polit- you know, most powerful Republican in Washington. So, Lene, you know, from the point of view of someone who's trying, tried to shepherd legislation through Congress, how important is McConnell to Senate Republicans? How likely do you think they are to, you know, uh, put someone else in as leader if they take back the Senate um, later this year? I think that McConnell's hold over his caucus is uh, an iron grip and nobody's going to oust him anywhere. (laughs) He will uh, do whatever is necessary to make sure that happens. Um, But I don't think that it really has implications for governing because that would imply that Mitch McConnell or the Republicans in the Senate are interested in governing, which is not actually true Mm. at this point. So, I mean, Mitch McConnell's only interest is in stopping people from governing at this point. So, I mean, just remember in the last couple of years of the Trump administration, they they didn't pass anything because they didn't have any ideas to pass. They had already done the tax cut and then they were like, oh, now what? That I guess. That Fresh was out. the thing we're doing. So, so I mean, it, he's not he's not interested in governing. He's interested maybe sometimes in keeping the government open sometimes, but that's about it. So I don't think it's going to have an impact on like, you know, legislation that gets passed. He's not going to all of a sudden say, oh, you know what? I like democracy. Let's talk more about voting rights. Like he's on the wrong side on all of the governing issues. <laughs> he just actually you know, is is not as crazy maybe as uh, some of those RNC members in that he knows that there is some limit to what American voters will accept. And he's much mm. more interested in keeping power than he is in, you know, kneeling at the foot of Donald Trump. And understands that in order to keep power, you have to keep voters on your side, a majority of them, not just the crazy wing. Not just yeah. the RNC. <laughs> okay. Ottawa protests. I am fascinated by this and, and, and I'm excited to talk about this with you guys because this is something that's happening in Canada. So for two weeks, protesters have been demonstrating in the Canadian capital of Ottawa. It began as a trucker 
as a truck driver protest in the capital over a new rule that mandated that when truck drivers re-enter Canada from the United States, they must be vaccinated. But a federation that represents truckers across Canada has said that 90% of Canadian truckers are vaccinated, and the group denounced the protests. Uh, a spokesperson for the group said that most of the people in and around the protests do not have a connection to the trucking industry. That's a quote. The protests have stretched from Ottawa to Huron Church Road in Windsor, which connects Canada to Detroit across the Ambassador Bridge, which is a vital link for the automobile industry and accounts for about 25% of trade between U.S. and Canada. In a Bloomberg story about the protests, they noted that uh, in the in the mile-long stretch of cars that were there, only three semi-trucks. So this is clearly not just about truck drivers. It's not just about the, uh, the mandate that they be vaccinated. This is bigger than that. It's different. The biggest headlines have been about the swastikas, the Confederate flags, the QAnon symbols on display at the protests. Over the weekend, um, GoFundMe blocked the release of almost $10 million in donation to the Freedom Convoy. Uh, in connection with the promotion of violence and harassment. That's a quote in Ottawa. GoFundMe said they have uh, had evidence from law enforcement that the previously peaceful demonstrations had turned violent. Uh, a columnist for the Canadian newspaper in uh, Canadian newspaper, the National Post, spoke with hundreds of protesters over the last week and noted that the protests are more focused on vaccine policy more broadly. Um, Canada has barred unvaccinated people from shopping in big box stores. Uh, one protester said that his monthly grocery bill just jumped by $200. Some have said that vaccine mandates violate their bodily autonomy. Uh, one protester said, who is not a trucker and worked at a major accounting firm, said he was being treated as a second-class citizen in the office. Uh, he has a hereditary heart condition that he said made the vaccine inadvisable, but he wasn't able to get a medical exemption. And at work, he had to wear a mask and felt that he was being publicly shamed, and he quit. So. There's a lot going on here, and I feel like this event has become almost uh, symbolic for a lot of different things and attitudes and emotions. Uh, and I wonder what you're thinking about, you know, the protests in general and the complaints across the board from unvaccinated people frustrated with vaccine mandates. Let's dive into this. Lucy, why don't you lead off? One thing that I think is really strange about this movement, which, as you say, goes far beyond Ottawa, it's happening all over, it's happening in New Zealand, probably much more to come, is that the anti-vax crowd, if we think of this as a as a a, a project, a production of the a pop-up of the anti-vax crowd, the anti-vax crowd, the anti-mask crowd, the anti-lockdown crowd have always positioned themselves as being on the side of the little guy, being on the side of economic prosperity, that, that you know, these deep state, big government forces were trying to do things that are going to shut down the economy and hurt them. And now their real piece de resistance is blocking a, a major, major trade artery and decimating businesses in Ottawa that are in the area of their of their protest. And there have been some stories this week that are just heartbreaking of of business owners in that area, restaurants, otherwise, that are now 
maybe going to go out of business if this continues to go on because that the protest has basically caused them to have to shut down their business. And I think that it's such a weird moment because it, it, it's, and this is maybe I'm fixated on this because this feels like it's, uh, 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 the same as all these other struggles that we have everywhere or other themes, but, but the thing that these people have claimed this is about turns out to not be what it's about it. And, and so we can, we have spent the last two years trying to reason with anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, anti-lockdowners, trying to make arguments to them like, well, we're doing a cost benefit analysis. And this is the reason that we think that it's still better to have these limitations on business. And like, we're going to backfill, you know, lost wages, lost business with this. And also that is such a fool's errand, right? Because at the end of the day, now we can see that they're actually a movement that is fine with decimating small business and they are fine with, with injuring their local economies. And and maybe that's a weird thing to have stuck in my mind, but I, I think it's a really important thing to think about when when thinking about how to deal with these people because there's so much this reflex. Like we just have to understand why they feel this way. We have to kind of answer these things they're bringing up. And they're basically showing now through this that that was all a farce, really. <laughs> Does that well, make and sense? I th- <laughs> it does. I think I dis- I think I disagree, and I'm concerned about. I- I'm concerned about the. Uh, I'm concerned that we haven't adequately understood and empathized with the sentiment that seems to be growing because this isn't just about truck drivers anymore. That you know, I read this piece in the Atlantic by Yasha Monk saying, you know, it's time to open everything basically. And Yasha Monk's a serious person. He's a, you know, German intellectual. Uh, you can look up lots of stuff that he's written. He was one of the first people to say, it's time to lock down everything, social distancing, everything, right? But, uh, and there was another journalist, um, uh, Ross Barkin, who asked a question in the headline, why aren't we even talking about uh, when we will reopen everything and go back to normal? We, we don't even have benchmarks for it. We have not set goals. We have not set... And so... I worry that without that kind of dialogue, at least at that kind of messaging in in and discourse in public media, that we're painting a very bleak picture, especially for the uh, the essential workers that we all relied on and praised and and cheered for, and the people transporting our goods across uh, the country are it, 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 nothing less than essential. They are sort of the epitome of essential workers, and so I I worry, uh, and I'm not sure I'm not sure how much I disagree because you're making lots of good points, but I worry that we're not adequately um, recognizing the, 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 the threat of what, what's going to happen to society if we don't learn how to heal these I think, divisions. I think that's true, Ron, but you're, you're smashing two things together. The, uh, there are not, I probably th- those am, essential yeah. workers are not the ones that are protesting. The people that are protesting right. are people who claim, there were some of them that claim to be sovereign citizens that aren't subject to any laws. Like these are Branch Davidian, Timothy McVeigh people. These are people who are, are anti-law enforcement, are attacking the police, are attacking these businesses. They're not pro-business. They're not, you know, they were probably wearing a Blue Lives Matter shirt uh, a year ago, and now they're attacking the police. They they are not people with 
legitimate concerns. This, these are, and they're legitimate concerns. We're going to have a whole conversation about that and masking it, and that's fine. But that's not who these folks are, and I don't think that we should equate them. I mean, the sh- most shocking thing that I saw, um, other than obviously the swastikas and and all of the crazy white supremacist stuff that that um, you know is is tied up in this, is they said that a, um, a quarter of the trucks have kids living in them. Because they want to make sure that the police cannot respond. That is what's stopping the police from responding, is they put their kids in harm's way. Like, this is Waco. This is Branch Davidian. This is not legitimate discussion about reopening. Yeah, good points. Mike, you're uh, deep in thought over there. Yeah, I think I see this a little bit differently. I don't believe this is a social movement at all. I believe that this is a paid operation that is being funded by foreign by by the Russians. <laughs> I mean, look, this is there's understand a couple things. There's no Fox News in Canada. They don't have that same right. They're they're not watching you know Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson talking about the de- demise of, of the U.S. Congress. There's no there's no Murdoch equivalent. The reason why the police chief has not moved, I'm, I'm sure that those children have something to do with that, is because there is something far more nefarious behind this than just a handful of people misbehaving. There is a very serious conflict that is taking place in Ottawa right now that is heavily funded, extremely sophisticated, and I would suggest I think it's probably heavily armed. There are like outposts in different spots around it. It's not just a bunch of trucks parked there. There are, there, are, there are people that have taken over a number of different parking lots in a very strategic way that they're not allowing police members or members of the public into. There's an operation happening here that could be potentially extremely explosive. And I don't believe that it is just a handful of cranks and militia members. Um, I think that that's part of it for sure. I think that they've, they've, been, they've been attracted to this uh, for getting bodies in there. But this is, look, these movements are happening in different parts of Europe. And it's not just because people are pissed about lockdowns, okay? It's because this stuff is orchestrated in a very sophisticated transnational political operation being run by countries that have a vested interest in the destabilization of these countries. These are not one-offs. This is all- That's a real- globally coordinated activity when you watch this stuff happening in eastern europe when you watch this stuff happening in western europe when you watch this stuff happening here when you watch it happen you know even now in in canada it's not that there's just a bunch of people who are pissed off about vaccines that that, there are clearly those people are involved i do not have for a moment the confidence that people uh, the 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 anti-vaccine cranks have the ability to coordinate the shutdown of a capital like that in the way that this has, if that were the case, the cops would have moved on them. The law enforcement would have moved on this a long time ago. They're sitting on a powder keg. There is something far bigger and far more nefarious at play here that could cause a, a very significant incident incidents, which you know wouldn't just be you know screaming kids pulling them out of cabs of, of trucks. I, I, and I don't mean to d- dismiss that. I think that that's true. But I think a professional law enforcement operation could clean that up. There is a reason why they are not. There's a reason why the main artery of the, of the economy is being shut down and they're not moving on it. 
There's a reason why we're, there's more silence at this moment in time than, than vocal um, discussions about the, 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 the plan to, to, to clean this up or the tolerance level. There's something far bigger going on, and I think it's a global dynamic um, that, again, we've talked about this on the show too. This is the future of the way politics are going to work. There are going to be transnational actors engaged in, in, in political um, activity. And they're not playing by the same rules. I don't mean they're going to have like candidates that want to debate, you know, with our politicians about certain policy issues. This is intended to disrupt democracy. There's this battle has engaged. It's begun. We are the the new era isn't coming. We are waist deep in it, and we need to start addressing it that way if we're going to successfully fight it back. So let me let me expand on that and add some context to what you're saying because um, Wired reported that even as the numbers on the ground in Ottawa are dwindling, the online movement is gaining momentum. Um, and videos about the protest have been shared by you know, Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, Donald Trump Jr., and they've got millions of views. An extremist researcher from Queen's University in Ottawa said that the online presence has been transnational, as you mentioned, uh, and consists of people from Brazil, Australia, and the U.S. Facebook's parent company, Meta, said that they had removed groups and pages in support of the event that were run by spammers. They called them spammers. Um, And these pages, uh, Steve Riley, who's an investigative reporter from Grid News, found that only uh, there was only one administrator on the most active Facebook groups, and it had they had these Facebook groups had like three hundred three hundred thousand or so um, followers. Appeared to be one lone woman in Missouri whose Facebook account had been hacked. So these she wasn't even responsible herself. Her account had been hacked, and she was the you know the quote unquote administrator of these groups. So that, to me, sounds eerily similar to what we now understand was the Russian playbook in both 2016 and 2020, right? Where the, you know, the, the, what they do is amplify and exploit existing divisions that are already, that already exist and, and make them look much, much bigger than they are. Um, so, and we don't have any evidence of that. I'm not claiming that this is the Russians or anything, but it does, it does sort of track with what you're, yeah, and, and look, I'm not trying to be, this, con- Mike. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy yeah. theorist here either, right? You, you, you've got to yeah. keep right. your head about this. But, but I will say a couple of things. The first is the nature of war, warfare is not going to be like it was in World War II, right? You have a very aggressive Russian posture in Ukraine right now. I mean, they basically surrounded the country and, are, and are, want to have a showdown with, with NATO. The greatest strength... For, for the Russians, and, and for that matter, the Chinese, who, who are working together, clearly for the first time in modern history, is to have democracy destabilized, especially those that are going to be engaged in a potential conflict in the European theater, having domestic problems at home. It's not hard to do in a democracy with the technology that we have. That's what we have learned, is, is, is the oligarchs with billions of dollars are pawns. They're using petrodollars to flood the system and and engage in, in destabilizing our government, make them as ungovernable as possible. I would absolutely spend that few hundred million or billion dollars if I'm Putin before I'm going to roll 100,000 troops into Ukraine. I mean, wouldn't you? It's not that hard. Got a couple of people hacking into some yeah, Facebook right. pages, spend a few hundred thousand dollars building up an online movement on an infrastructure that already exists and cause trouble for Western nations that are that are that are democracies. I mean, 
in yeah, hindsight, the I mean, playbook it, exists. It may sound scary but, and conspiratorialist looking forward, but looking back, it's like, of course you would do that. Why wouldn't you do that? Right. And I think to your point that this is going to be the way these uh, operations, campaigns, politics is done going forward. Okay. So that leaves me with one question. If we take that at face value, the question then is what, what becomes then of legitimate peaceful protests? What do they, what did those look like? Do, do they not exist anymore? Is, can you have a legitimate peaceful protest against government policies that don't end up getting co-opted or corrupted or uh, or amplified in some way by nefarious actors. That's that's what I'm left with. Well, or could you have a peaceful protest generally? Could a protest that gains ground ever remain a true grassroots protest that does not become a vehicle for special interest groups, good or bad? And I think the answer is no. You, we don't have those anymore. And, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we would talk about astroturfing, right? Which was sort of like, how do we, this still happens, but it was, then we were talking about, okay, how do you create the appearance of a movement, right? How do you go get people, get people to go, whether it's a, a NIMBY or someone else, like take up a cause? How do we elevate these voices? The, the, the landscape that we're operating in now is that you don't have to do all the R&D of, of trying to home grow these people because you can just start to, they're all popping up. They're all connecting with each other. And, and you, can then, you can then sort of elevate and amplify the ones popping up as you see fit. And, and that is a real tactical thing, but that really changes how issue advocacy work is done. And so sometimes that's for good. Sometimes that is movement making for good. And, and I think a lot of listeners would, th- I mean, this is how Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, gained ground in, in 20, in 2020. It is not only that people were so activated over George Floyd's death, right? Interest groups that I think most people would say are by and large very benevolent saw an opportunity to to capture the energy of these groups rising up and make it a much bigger movement and they took the opportunity so so some of this is this happens for good too right some of this is just movement making in the modern age but to answer your question are there ever true protests anymore true grassroots protests true you know grassroots advocacy or just sort of independent minded people coming together to take a stand no, I think we're past that. That's Lene, quaint. I, now. I, I totally disagree. No, I totally disagree. I mean, first of all, like I would point to two very recent examples. Um, the first of which is the Women's March. The Women's March was not co-opted by anyone. In fact, they uh, tried to figure out how to like harness the energy from that and then do something with it that resulted in, you know, policy changes. And that didn't actually work because it wasn't united around um, one specific policy. It wasn't about reproductive rights. It wasn't about um, feminism. It was about hating Trump and being, you know, very um, frustrated that someone who is such a misogynist could be elected president. Um, So I, I think, but that was absolutely homegrown. And, you know, I, I was there, there was, there was no, um, kind of puppeteer behind the scenes at the women's March. They were just mad 
mad women and then and men um and then the you know the other is um the march for our lives you know i was at the march for our lives after parkland and um and i do not think that that was co-opted or um orchestrated or um you know uh kind of um curated in fact i think um some of the biggest gun organizations tried to do that and failed because the parkland students were um were very insistent on being their own messengers and having their own message and um folks showed up because that message was very resonant so um i i think then once something like that catches fire then of course people are going to want to start you know, using it, harnessing that energy. And I think that's what I would describe the Black Lives Matter movement as is um, it was a genuine, you know, cry um, from the grassroots for somebody pay attention to this. This is, it's enough is enough. And now it has been harnessed by organizations that um, are working to um, you know, enact the policies or organizations that started out of it to enact the policies um, that would make make it so that the George Floyd murder didn't happen again. But um, I guess I'm just not as skeptical. There are some absolutely there's some astroturfed movements, but I, I think there are still some that are just, you know, come from the cry of uh, Americans saying enough is enough. Yeah, I leave this segment just worried about the future of uh, peaceful demonstration. I'd, I'd like just worried. I don't, I don't know what the right answer is here, but I think this is frightening. Ron, can I give one frankly. more example? Because obviously the examples yeah. that I just used are mostly on the left, but um, the pro-life movement has been having peaceful protests at the Supreme court for years and years and years. They did it again this year on the anniversary of Roe. There wasn't a, um, you know, a Nazi symbol at the March for Life. There wasn't, a, you know, a bunch of people with guns and trucks and chaos. They marched, they went and had their opinion known um, and and nothing bad happened. So I, I just think, you know, there there is a population that is trying to take um, division and amplify it for their own good. But I just don't think that that's the vast majority of Americans, what, no matter where they are on the political spectrum. Let's move on to masks. Governors across the country have announced that they're going to lift different statewide mask mandates. Oregon, New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware have all announced plans to end statewide mask mandates in schools after these mandates began lifting. Uh, the earliest is Connecticut on February 28. Local leaders like mayors and superintendents uh, would be able to make their own decisions about mask requirements. Delaware is also allowing its universal indoor mask mandate to expire this week and will allow the school mask mandate to expire at the end of March. California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom announced that he will allow the state's indoor mask mandate for vaccinated people to end on February 15th. The indoor mandate will remain in place for school children and the unvaccinated. New York State has also lifted its statewide mask or vaccine requirement for indoor business, uh, but not for schools. Governor, Governor Kathy Hochul said the state would review COVID-19 test results and other metrics next month and decide whether to continue requiring masks in schools. At the same time, according to data and guidelines from the CDC, people in more than 3,200 counties or 99% of the counties in the country should be wearing masks regardless of their vaccination status. The CDC recommends wearing masks where the new case rate is higher than 50 cases per 100,000 or the testing positivity rate exceeds 8%. 
Last week, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky acknowledged that Americans are eager and anxious to ditch their masks, but she noted that while new cases are trending down, about a third compared to the week before, hospitals remained overwhelmed by COVID cases. We're admitting about 17,000 new COVID patients to hospitals every day over the last week, and Dr. Anthony Fauci told NBC Chicago that school mask mandates were part of a multi-layered strategy to keep kids safe in schools, combined with vaccinations among staff members and proper ventilation in schools. Fauci noted that this multi-layered approach has been successful at keeping children safe and said we should, quote, get the dynamic of the virus in the community low enough so that we can feel safe pulling back on the requirement for children to wear masks, end quote. (sighs) There's a lot of shit moving and changing when it comes to COVID guidelines. And I, for one, am having a difficult time keeping up with it. How, how, and if I am having a difficult time keeping up with it, and I read the news all the time, like I feel for the average person who has thrown their hands up in exasperation about what and when and where and how to and how much risk they uh, should tolerate or not tolerate or who should make that decision for them. And how are the three of you thinking about the decision to roll back mask mandates? And if you were advising candidates up for re-election in 2022, how would you be advising them to talk about these changes? Mike? I think we're we're um, rapidly getting to the point where we're going to have to acknowledge that we were just not able to pull together as a people and beat this thing, right? It's like it's like recognizing a foreign policy failure. Yeah. Zero COVID is not going to be a thing. It's not going to work. We we can't do it. We we couldn't muster the unity to 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 come together as a people and do it. And essentially, what the political class is doing is probably the right thing. Is basically saying, "All right, you guys want to live, you know." sick, then that's the way we're just going to have to live. And it's not a most of us, but it's enough of us to kind of prevent us from moving forward. And so that's just the way that life is going to be. Um, at that point, I think, you know, if I'm advising a politician, I don't necessarily know that it's an either or. I think that they're going to have to acknowledge that life has changed if you want to be responsible and that we will, you know, you, you should be wearing a mask uh, in, in indoor, you know, places when you know, ninety nine percent, you know, of, of of the of, of the counties meet the criteria where that should be happening and taking place. Uh, you know, I, I think it's irresponsible for politicians to say something otherwise. But I'm I'm not you know Pollyannish enough to believe that half of the politicians will seek to get, gain political advantage. I mean, that's what got us into this in the first place. Um, but I, I think that there's a bigger there's there's a bigger problem. What happens when the next virus comes and it's deadly? Yeah. I mean, what is that? Where are we yeah. at? Like, right. It's like, do what you want. And this is and something. Yeah. There's just, there's no longer, we no longer have a commitment to, um, to each other or to, to the country or to our communities. That's really the, the bigger, the bigger dilemma, which I think explains a lot of why America is at where it's at right now. I don't know that you get that back. And I, I, I say that because I'm not too sure that the human experience has ever, um, seen, a society go through this. I mean, we're just uh, technologically at a place where we're really not that committed to one another anymore as human beings. And that commitment is what allowed us to be a successful species. That's what allowed us to evolve and, 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 you know, crawl out of the swamp is we needed and wanted each other. And we really aren't in that place anymore. So without taking it too, too high level here, um, I, I just, I just, I, I, I think that we need to start acknowledging as a country, we couldn't do it. 
we, we, we couldn't isolate long enough and we couldn't trust vaccines enough and we couldn't wear a mask enough. This is basically an acknowledgement by the federal government that it that there's nothing else we can do. And no one's listening to us. And there's too many messages going too many different ways. And so let's just understand that that's the reality that we're, that we're in. I kind of disagree. I mean, we have a most Americans have gotten vaccinated. We are at a point in the virus cycle where uh, we are moving into a scenario where this is endemic, not pandemic. And there are vaccines widely available. And the virus itself at this point in the prevailing mutations is mostly mild illness. We have a lot of ways to fight the Ill- to fight this now that we didn't have. And I think that we have to be comfortable with the fact that we're not ever going to eradicate COVID and that and I mean there are strains of the Spanish flu that are still floating around, right? With a, a complete eradication of COVID was never going to be possible. And I do think that most Americans want to get back to life as normal and I don't judge them for that. I want to get back to life as normal also. I'm a vaccine enthusiast. I've never had COVID. I mask in lots of places where people don't. Other people don't. I probably will wear masks on planes forever. When I go to places with high cases, I do like a weird nasal swab thing that's like a like a prophylactic nasal swab thing. I'm taking zinc. I say all of that to say- I didn't know that was a thing. Who even knows if it is? But like, if it might work, <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm, I'm like very hardcore- in my individual behavior about COVID. And I, I am saying that as, as the caveat here, you know, is, as the, the precursor yeah. to say this. I think that a lot of the politics around COVID have become performative. I think the media coverage of COVID has become performative. And I think that the political class feels like they're up against a wall and that they have to be performative too. Most Americans are being careful-ish and they are seeing people they trust in private not masked, they're getting together again. And you know, the 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 kind of hypocrisy, I think, for instance, of of, of places lifting mask mandates, but then continuing mask mandates in schools of mostly vaccinated children, for instance, when we know that then those kids are going to be picked up from school by their by their parents who are not wearing masks and driven to like the grocery store where they will shop unmasked. I totally understand the frustration of Americans who are saying, some of this has just become theatrical. I I completely get that. And and I think we we have to just we have to recalibrate where our comfort level is. I am comfortable with the fact that unvaccinated people are taking a big risk and that maybe I and other people in my life are no longer going to be conforming our behavior to reduce their risk profile of getting a bad case of COVID. So I don't know that it is such a failure. I, I think I, I understand why you would use the word failure, but I, but I think what is actually in order here is a, a recalibration of, of how we approach this whole cloth. I mentioned a piece in, in The Atlantic by Ross Barkin uh, back in October that we don't have public benchmarks for easing the COVID restriction that remain in place. So if we did have... Uh, public benchmarks for easing the restrictions. What impact do you think that would have? Um, you know, and and if you take Walensky at her word about high hospitalization rates, 
do you think it would give some hope if we were able to say publicly, the CDC said, if we get the rate under X percent of beds, this is what we can lift. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be helpful, sure. But, um, but you know, I don't think that it would be game-changing because the guidance has changed so many times, right? I mean, like, we've, we've given deadlines and then we've passed them. We've given metrics and then we've passed them and then we've changed them. So I don't know if, this, if Rochelle Walensky came out and said, when it's X case number, then we're going to do Y, I would be like, okay, that's what you say today. Like, things are changing. So I don't know how much that would do. Um, it might help a little. But I think what the transition that I'm seeing is um, a distinction between mask wearing as your duty to take care of others versus mask wearing as personal responsibility. And those are two very different things. And if you, um, you know, in our country, we value um, people being able to do stupid things, right? They can do stupid things as long as it's only going to hurt them. People can smoke cigarettes as long as it's only going to hurt them. They can't smoke them inside. They can't smoke them in a school because secondhand smoke will, uh, you know, give kids cancer. Not a good idea. So if you want to hurt yourself, we make that pretty easy in this country. And at the beginning, what we were told was that you wearing a mask yourself wasn't enough. Other people also needed to wear a mask in order to take care of you. And now with the presence of vaccines, the presence of treatment and the, you know, testing and, um, and the, the, you know, the proliferation of and N95 masks, there's all kinds of things I can do to protect myself from other people's idiocy. And if that's the case, then there's a difference between a mask mandate and whether or not I'm going to wear a mask. I'm still going to wear a mask, especially in places with a bunch of people that I think are idiots. Like that, that's my personal responsibility to wear a mask. So I think that that's where we're getting to is that these democratic politicians are saying, all right, listen, the people who uh, are worried about this and are being careful about this are going to be okay. The people who are not worried about this and aren't caring about this are are not listening anyways. So let's just acknowledge that, get rid of the mask mandate and move forward. I think the thing that is a little bit complicated is that only 30% of kids ages 5 to 11 are vaccinated compared to about 70% of American adults. So is that because people are hesitant? Is it because it hasn't been available long enough? I'm not sure. Um, but that does make kids a little bit different. And it certainly makes things like daycares different when, you know, my my friends who have three-year-olds don't have access to the vaccine at all. My niece can't get vaccinated because she's a year and a half. So that is the, the last component, I think. And if we can get that six-month to five-year vaccine out there and get those numbers up, um, then I think we should be able to basically go back to normal and realize that the people who are going to be hurt by this are the people that have decided that they want to hurt themselves. Yeah, I, 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 I completely agree with you. And I think those, those are points. A lot of those are points that the, that Yasha raised in his piece. Um, uh, ex- exactly those points, which is, yeah. So maybe we'll link to that article so people can, can see where that argument's coming from if you're skeptical about raising restrictions. But I also think it would be effective for the messaging to lean into empathizing with people and their frustrations with the mandates anyway, because it is very possible, and I am one of them, to be very pro-vaccine, very, very, very pro-vaccine, and also done with the mandates. And I think that's a, that's a, 
um, I think that's a lane that a lot of people are are in now, and it's not being acknowledged because it's too binary. The conversation is too binary. Um, it, it's uh, but it's yeah. a view that is completely consistent, right? Your faith yeah. in vaccines, your faith in the supply chain to bring people who want it the vaccine, your faith in this miracle of science is consistent with being done with continued mandates. That's a completely consistent position. But we've we've gotten this like weird thread of culture where people are afraid to say that because there's all this moralism around mask mandates. It's, it's And signaling. Yes. Yeah. Mike, I want to go back to a point that you alluded to uh, now that we've covered mandates and stuff, but you, may, you raise a really important point. Um, and I think you made this point also last week when we were together. I can't remember if it was on mic or off mic, but it's this idea that America is and only ever really can be bound together in unity by what we stand for, by by uh, by what we believe in, as opposed to nearly every other country in the world that has a, a shared attachment to a land or an, ethnic, an ethnicity. We do not have that. Um, and we used to know what it was that we believed in. We used to all agree and be on the same page about what it was we believed in, but we don't have that right now. Um, can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, there's this is it's not a. It's I hope not, I'm attributing that to you correctly. It's not a new or a novel opinion about kind of America and the American idea, right? The, the uniqueness of America, in 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 essence, is an argument by saying that when when we as Americans talk about the mythology or the virtuous nature of being American, and anybody can become an American, there's also implicit in that that there's kind of there's a certain nothingness about it. Right there's there is no cultural anchor to being an American. There is no ethnic tradition. There is no religious tradition. There is really not even much of a historical tradition in the context of of most other races and eth- or all races and ethnicities on, on the on the globe. And so what what do you really have to to keep you organized for this call? And 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 freedom alone is is not enough. In fact, it's probably more more of a danger to that unity than anything else. And we saw that on full display during the pandemic. What what has been unique in our past, whether it was polio or whether it was all sorts of other vaccines, was this commitment to a nation, was a commitment to a community, was a commitment to each other. As much as it was for ourselves, so I, I'm listening to, to Lene, who I think very uh, um, accurately pointed out the argument that it's it's changed from hey we need to do this for each other to doing it to myself as a more for myself as a more compelling argument. <laughs> That's true. It's also I think dangerous. <laughs> when you're talking about public health and pandemic, that's that's not a that's not a strength of a country. It's not a strength of a people. That's a, that's a weakness, and that's what we saw. And that that's my argument about this being a policy failure. Is what if we? No one was saying at the beginning of the pandemic, oh, let's just get it to endemic levels, and then that's a success. Like nobody said that. That wasn't that was never the goal. The policy was not focused on that. We can change. We can change our goals. We can move the mileposts. We can say, oh, now that we've learned this is what that is, but we have to recognize that the way that we were approaching global pandemic, which we will see another one in our lifetimes, I'm convinced of that, we will see that. We're not ready to do that. Like We have to be honest about that. We failed at that. We failed. And it's not, it's not saying that we're bad people. It's not saying that we're, we're right or wrong, but that policy paradigm did not work. Quantifiably, it did, did not work. So what will? 
And when you don't have that commitment to each other culturally, when, when being an American is not enough, or when you believe that wearing a mask or not wearing a mask actually makes you an enemy of the nation, which is where we're at, how can you possibly rely on people's commitments to one another to advance a policy agenda? And the answer is you can't. You can't. And for a long time, that was viewed as as a successful characteristic of the American nation, right? That's our entire mythology is we can do whatever we, we kind of want to do. But tacit in that freedom was the ability or freedoms, the freedoms that we enjoyed was the, the social commitment to each other's success. I mean, you always heard people during the Great Depression saying, I didn't know I was poor because we were all poor and nobody was, you know, judgy about that. We were all in it together. Or World War II is, you know, you had 16, 17-year-old boys lying to be 18 because they wanted to go be part of the fight for the country. I mean, you, you didn't see that. You haven't seen that. <laughs> I mean, you know, since the 1940s, like, right? We, we are moving further and further away from each other and a society that does not have a common ethnic or common cultural characteristic or a common history or common ethnicity or lineage, what do you really have? And, and that was the, the, the next part of that argument is if unless America is moving forward towards something, it's like a shark. It, it, it dies, right? A shark has to keep moving. Even while it's sleeping, it's moving. And if it doesn't, it, it dies. And so America has to continually grow to succeed once it stops, once it starts becoming regressive in its beliefs, once it starts saying, make America great again, right? Let's go back to what we were. It's essentially coming apart. The undercarriage of the whole thing starts to, to unwind. And I think that there's a lot of signs that that's where we're at right now because we're not, we're not creating uh, – there, there is no common narrative. There is no common – American ethic. There is no common cultural anchor that 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 defines us as Americans anymore. If there ever really was, by the way, uh, uh, not not terribly related to masks and COVID. Uh, I know a little bit off topic. No, no, it is. No, it is. And yeah, but no, it, it is. It, and that's exactly it, why it, I wanted you. I, I wanted to it, wind you up and let you go. Yeah, I think it explains you know Delaney's really well well um, articulated point. And, and and I never viewed it that way, but she, she's exactly right. We we started as a policy by saying, "Hey, we're all in this together. You know, let's all be in lockdown together, and we'll all take care of you know each other by doing this. Do this as something as as a way to um, take care of each other." And that that lasted until the Tiger King series ran out, right? And after that, it was just like, "I'm done with this shit. Like, I'm going to the beach," and and um. Yeah, and look, I see it in the younger generations too. I mean, I think for all all of all of the, and I'm not going to be, you know, be one of those guys who's going to be really critical of other generations because I'm not real real fond of that. But you know, we have Generation Z, of which my my three kids are, is this kind of really unique American nation where they're presented with this whole host of global problems. Right, and there was this great hope that they were the ones that would come together and, and and solve climate change, and they were less partisan, and they were much more comfortable with a diverse society, and 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 people that were not like them was was viewed as a true value. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. But I will also say, in the early days of the pandemic, what was spreading the virus was young people going out and and partying and going to bars, and that's what really the CDC was focused on. It was young people were not doing what the, the narrative of their generation was. The first test for Gen Z and younger millennials 
was a failure, right? Like how are you going to solve climate change if you can't, you know, not go out and party every week to, to prevent other people from getting sick? And I don't say that as, as to judge another generation. It's to take a step back and clinically observe what happened over the past couple of years, what worked and what didn't, because folks, th- there's going to be another pandemic. The world is just too intertwined, and we are lucky that this was not nearly as deadly as it could be, because the next one that is more deadly, if the anti-vaxxers have a fifth of the strength that they have now, it's going to wipe out a massive, massive swath of our population because we don't have that commitment to each other. We're more committed to ourselves than to each other. And that is the work of our lives, frankly. Yeah. I got to say, I, the processing uh, with you guys is always like the highlight of my week. Um, so thank you for being here. I love, your, I love your thoughts and your wisdom and your, and your insights, all of you. So um, thank you. Uh, now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, what do you got under the radar, Lene? Oh, I'm going to give you something fun because that's what I like to do, especially after we've had a really depressing conversation Great. about the end of democracy and division <laughs> and uh, pandemics and the next one. Uh, J.D. Vance. Do you remember J.D. Vance? Author of Hillbilly oh, Elegy. Lucy. Uh, Lucy. Uh, author yeah. of Hillbilly Elegy. <laughs> you know, clarion call about the economic woes and moral debilitation of the white working class turned pro-Trumpy Ohio Senate candidate is in what his own pollster now calls a precipitous decline in the polls because uh, somebody went back and found those anti-Trump things that he said five years ago and put them on TV. So outside groups made <laughs> made <laughs> videos of J.D. Vance 1.0 that they are now using to attack J.D. Vance 2.0 for having been anti-Trump five years ago. And it's just such a beautiful comeuppance because he is, I mean, I know you can point to Lindsey Graham and others who have been all over the place, but like J.D. Vance, like, you know, turned himself inside out to become a Trumpy and, and is one of those ones like Josh Hawley that we talk about that he knows what he's doing. He's a smart guy. He's an educated guy. And he did it in a, in a way that was calculated and the jig is up. People are like, oh, shit, you don't actually like Trump, huh? Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to vote for one of the other 12 Trumpy candidates on here instead. And that <laughs> just warms my heart. I, I heard somebody call I the campaign like a womp, Hill, womp Hillbilly womp Eulogy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Wonderful. That's good. Lucy, what do you got? I have a fun one, too. So... There's an interesting case proceeding forward in North Carolina to do with the ongoing eligibility and future candidacy of Madison Cawthorn, uh, MAGA boy wonder, youngest member of Congress. Uh, so some people have brought a lawsuit claiming that Madison Cawthorn is ineligible to run for re-election to hold office because there's a a provision in the 14th Amendment uh, and there's some precedent for this uh, that that 
says that if someone has taken part in an active insurrection or rebellion, they're disqualified from holding future office. And, and this, this whole case comes down to, um, the meaning of, of the word engage, right? Like, what does it mean to have engaged in insurrection? Madison Cawthorn was a speaker at the January 6th insurrection. And, uh, there's a lot of precedent for this. There's precedent from 1869 for this in North Carolina. Um, and this case is proceeding. Uh, who knows if it's going to result in Madison Cawthorn being kicked off the ballot. I think that some of that determination may come down to uh, election officials in North Carolina. But it does mean that the case is likely to proceed in a way where there's interesting discovery and interesting discovery about what Madison Cawthorn's communication was with other folks, with organizers, uh, what Madison Cawthorn was en- encouraging people to do or how he was taking part behind the scenes on January 6th and in the lead up. And this group, which is successful with this lawsuit that sounds so uh, wacky, <laughs> has said that if they're successful here, that they will use this to go after other uh, insurrectionist uh, insurrection loving uh, members of Congress and and even Trump. So kind of a fun one, kind of a fun uh, constitution uh, uh, nerd story for folks to follow. It feels like something Republicans would do, to be honest. So I'm, I'm like, I'm here for it. (laughs) You're right. It's, it's it's interesting. You're right. Um, uh, And by the way, speaking of Madison Cawthorn, if you, if you want to, you know, get a an inside view of exactly what he was up to on that day. I interviewed a photographer who was embedded with him on January 6th. Her name is Gabrielle Demchuk, and she is phenomenal. And uh, we'll we'll link to that episode as well. The story was very moving. Like she got, I think I cried in the interview, but it was amazing. Um, uh, I um. I just, I just saw a fun little story. Mine's, mine's quick, but the, um, I am happy to announce that the U.S. government now holds three point six billion dollars worth of Bitcoin <laughs> because they seized it uh, uh, from a couple who had been seemingly uh, attempting to launder it because uh, this was this was Bitcoin that was hacked from a, uh, an exchange called Bitfinex a while back, and they they seized it from the couple who were trying to launder it. They, the couple weren't, wasn't responsible for the hacking. They still are not quite sure who was responsible for the hacking, but the Justice Department has successfully recovered it. So I just think it's funny that, you know, they now hold all this Bitcoin. But also, um, this uh, this is just one data point in the column against the narrative that Bitcoin is, you know, sort of uh, only only used for, you know, criminal to fund criminal enterprises. And it's, un, and it's very difficult to, you know, uh, evade money laundering prosecution because it's all actually transparent and on a blockchain. And that is actually why the Justice Department was able to seize it because it has these properties. So the idea that, you know, it is, um, it is a threat to law enforcement is actually uh, the opposite is true. It's actually easier for law enforcement to track and seize um, money that has been stolen in this currency. Anyway. Mike, what do you got? Well, first let me say I, I love the the characters uh, in that saga too. The 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 rap artist uh, who was the <laughs> holder. Oh, yeah. of the Bitcoin. It's just a a a, a great story. <laughs> people are interested in. It's really. I, I'm funny. watching something much more mundane and boring, um, but will have I think significant impacts, and that is 
uh, the wrapping up of redistricting is is basically coming to a close. There's about a dozen mm-hmm. or so states, I think, that are still out there. But by and large, the districts um, are decidedly much more in favor of the Democrats than anybody, I think, even imagined. The numbers look uh, much better. Um, I don't necessarily, you know, I'm not going to prognosticate on what that means yet, but we're, we're getting into numbers seasons, folks. So we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about the math <laughs> that happens going forward. But for the moment, so get out your cereal bowl. Yeah. But for the moment, um, uh, <laughs> redistricting doesn't look to be nearly as apocalyptic as, as was once, um, prognosticated about. So keep an eye on that. Should be done in a couple, yeah. couple weeks. Yeah. It's a good one. Uh, although the, the number of competitive districts have again shrunk by significant numbers, which it's going it, to concentrate a lot more money and a lot more, you know, storytelling into an even fewer number of competitive districts. And that's what we'll do. You know what? We should do a whole conversation on that separately because the competitiveness of- We should have a conversation on that because there's a lot of organizations yeah. out there raising a ton of dough. And at a certain point you hit these, these limits on, 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 yeah. uh, there's a marginal return on the investment. I mean- there will probably right. be maybe 15 competitive districts, truly competitive districts in the entire country, which will determine the balance of power. Yeah. If you're throwing $500, $800 million into 15 districts, is that really the best use yeah. of your resources? If you're, if you're making contributions to campaigns, it'll probably be a little bit of a controversial topic, but it's something we should probably talk about. Right. But also there's this, there's this reality that all that money, then if you're looking to change the composition of the house, like all that money does, you're going to go from general elections into primary fights. Like that's where you're going to go. If you want to, if you want to get a different Democrat in or a different Republican in, all the money, all the competitiveness is going to switch to primaries and even more so than it already is, because that's going to be the only way to change, to turn over, to turn over seats. Um, that is, yeah. And well, that, I mean, there's one whole, other, again, more mundane yeah. thing, but that's what I think about is a lot of these, these local, um, election offices and secretary of state's offices are going to be just as important as who holds Congress. If you're worried about the 2024 election cycle and there's not enough discussion about that. And that, that's probably a better use of, of dollars in a lot of, a lot of ways, but we should talk about it. Let's head over to the after party, aka Politicology Plus. But before we do, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Mike? Uh, find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. We'll see you next time. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, You can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.